Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're starting a new series for the month of February, and I'll warn you in advance, this one is not for the faint of heart. We've all heard stories of good love gone bad, and in these episodes, we'll hear stories of those who were so possessive, obsessed, or controlling over their love interests that they took the ultimate revenge. These perpetrators were not content to just hurt or even kill, but felt the need to completely destroy. This is the series Revenge Attacks, And this episode is the murder of Sophie Elliott. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. In the summer of 2007, Clayton Weatherston's life appeared to be on an upswing. He was a research assistant, part-time lecturer, and tutor for the economics department of Otago University, in Dunedin, New Zealand, for several years. During that time, he was working towards his PhD and was now within a few months of receiving his doctorate after many years of study. Clayton Weatherston was a popular professor with his undergrads. He often took these students under his wing and mentored them. Many of his mentees had come from abroad, and Weatherston enjoyed helping them navigate the college and their new, unfamiliar surroundings. Dunedin is located in South Island on the southeast coast of New Zealand, and the university could be a bit overwhelming for newcomers. That summer, 31-year-old Clayton met 22-year-old Sophie Elliott. Sophie, who was a student at the university, came to know Weatherston while attending his class. Weatherston would later say that he wasn't interested in Sophie romantically at first, but was flattered when she made her own interest in him clear. He would later claim that Sophie had become obsessed with him. But others would say that while he was kind and generous to his students, Weatherston was also a bit of a narcissist. He seemed to revel in the attention he received from his younger students and his position of authority over them. One colleague said that at the university, Weatherston, quote, built an empire around himself where he was king. Before long, however, his relationship with Sophie Elliott deteriorated. The first red flag may have been when she took him home to meet her family. Sophie ended up embarrassed by his behavior towards her parents, Leslie and Gil Elliott. Leslie would characterize Weatherston as arrogant and with an air of entitlement. But Sophie was no shy violet. 
She was a woman who knew her own value, her own worth, and wasn't one to put up with an arrogant male who treated her like an afterthought. It's true that at first her mother saw a change in Sophie. She was depressed, unhappy, and appeared to be taking her new boyfriend's opinion of her to heart. Clayton Weatherston was one of those men who masked their own insecurities by tearing down others. Only in making Sophie feel less than did he feel powerful and in control. He made negative comments about Sophie's appearance, her weight, and even took to critiquing her features, saying her eyes were too close together and her ears too big. This, of course, was ridiculous. Sophie was a beautiful girl who had any number of admirers, not just for her beauty, but for her brains, her lovely personality, and her drive and ambition. She was about to complete her studies and obtain a degree in economics, and her professors all agreed that Sophie Elliott had a bright future ahead of her. This may have been Weatherston's motivation to criticize his girlfriend so relentlessly. Although he strutted around campus like the rooster in a hen house, the reality was he was a ball of insecurities who had a hard time accomplishing any goal he'd ever set for himself. The relationship between Sophie and Clayton became so dysfunctional that there were even physical altercations. Her friends and family witnessed this dynamic and urged her to end the relationship. In November of 2007, Sophie decided to take a vacation to Australia with a friend, partly to put distance between herself and Clayton. By this time, it was understood that their relationship was over, Weatherston even telling another professor that it was a relief when Sophie left. When she returned in December, she was invited to attend Weatherston's pre-graduation party with other students and friends at a local nightclub. Weatherston, who'd set a goal for himself of completing his PhD by the end of the year, was in a particularly good mood that night, and everyone, including Sophie, enjoyed the evening. Sophie was also in a good mood. She had been offered a job working for the Treasury and would be moving to Wellington, almost 800 kilometers north of Dunedin. She had put together an album of photos taken at Clayton's pre-graduation party to give to him. On December 27th, she asked to stop by to give him the gift. But according to Sophie, he wanted to have sex with her, and when she refused, Weatherston became angry and abusive. She wrote about the encounter in her diary. Quote, Clayton assaulted me. When I went to leave, he went absolutely psycho. No exaggeration at all, I assure you. He told me I'm an effing horrible person, everyone hates me, I'm effing ugly, he has never liked me, etc., while pinning me down with his entire body on his bed, end quote. She described how he had placed his forearm across her throat and his hand over her mouth to keep her quiet. She wrote at how panicked she felt and how furious he had become. He was so out of control she couldn't predict what he might do. When he turned around once to close the door, she was able to break free and escape. A week later, just one day before Sophie was to make her planned move to Wellington, Clayton Weatherston would perpetrate a horrific attack against his ex-girlfriend. The crime would shock the community, and his stated defense for this act of violence would spark outrage in the public and lead to a change in what could be offered as a defense in New Zealand's courts. In early January, Clayton Weatherston vented to a professor at the university about his ex-girlfriend, Sophie Elliott. He said he was done with her, and it was he who had broken off the relationship. Weatherston had submitted his dissertation for his PhD in economics in November. It was accepted, and he had applied to become a lecturer in the economics department. His professor tried to counsel him, 
warning Weatherston that it was unwise to call attention to his relationship issues if he hoped to teach at the university, especially since the relationship in question was with one of his former students. Weatherston continued his rant, criticizing Sophie and adding that she was a very insecure person who always needed him to reassure her about her appearance and her academic ability. He said she was also jealous and possessive and had broken a door at his home. But it was he who sounded like the jealous one when he complained about Sophie changing her Facebook status. It was his opinion that she'd done so to make him jealous. Incredibly, he shared with his professor that Sophie had reported to her mother that he had tried to rape her. He assured him that this was a lie. Sophie had come to his flat the night before, Weatherston said, to give him a check for, quote, a window she'd broken, end quote. He claimed she'd gotten physically aggressive with him and then said, there, now we're even. The professor cautioned Weatherston to let the drama with his ex-girlfriend go, that it could only hurt his chances of being hired on at the university. He knew that Sophie was moving away for a job, and he encouraged Weatherston to use this as a way to end things for good and move forward with his life. Weatherston assured him that he had no feelings left for Sophie. He was already dating someone else, he said. He then asked what he thought his chances were to be hired as a lecturer in the department. The professor answered that if he wanted to be seriously considered, he needed to learn to take criticism better. Weatherston had previously raised a fuss about the markings he'd received on his dissertation. In fact, his paper had been very well regarded by the board, but Weatherston was known to take issue whenever he received less than an A-plus grade on any exam or paper. He was considered a brilliant student, but arrogant and possibly narcissistic by his college professors. From his earliest days, Clayton Weatherston was a person who obsessed over things like perfect grades and could never let anything go, especially anything he perceived as criticism or slights by others. Clayton Robert Weatherston was born on January 9, 1976, in Dunedin, New Zealand. He was the youngest of three children born to Roger and Eulene Weatherston. His parents gave their son extra attention as he was the most sensitive of their children. His mother would describe him as happy and easy as a child, but also admitted that he became anxious about any type of new activity or change in situation. He had great difficulty leaving his mother's side, and when he started school, she would have to walk him partway every day or he'd refuse to go. Even so, there were many occasions when Eulene would get a phone call from Clayton's teacher saying that her son reported being ill and wanted to go home. Throughout his life, Clayton would often use illness as a way to avoid stressful situations. Clayton was extremely intelligent and a good student. By the age of six, he was reading at the middle school level and always placed at the top of his class. But at the age of 11, when he got four arithmetic problems wrong on an assignment, he was mortified. It turned out that he had poor eyesight, which he'd never revealed to anyone, and had copied down the problems incorrectly from the blackboard. He was also hypersensitive to criticism and had a fear of being ridiculed. His teacher made a comment that, in his recall of the incident, was humiliating. He claimed that in front of the entire class, she had said, What are you, blind? Clayton was taken for an eye exam, and again, in his own dramatic telling of events, the optometrist predicted that by the age of 19, he, quote, wouldn't be able to see what was on the plate in front of him. For several months, Clayton would refuse to wear the eyeglasses prescribed to him, afraid of being teased. Once he did start wearing them, the feared teasing never materialized. Truth be told, his classmates thought he was a bit awkward with or without glasses, but tended to leave him be. One classmate recalled that he, quote, snapped at other kids, 
Every now and then, he threw a spastic and buggered off, end quote. He was also persuaded to join a local rugby league. In this pursuit, Clayton also worked hard to be the best. He helped his team keep a five-year undefeated ranking and earned a point scoring record. However, his athletic pursuits came with their own set of challenges. Clayton became very anxious any time he was away from home, so when the team was required to travel for tournaments, he insisted his parents travel with him. They would rent a motel room, and Clayton and his parents roomed together, away from his teammates. On his first day of high school, because he was so nervous, Clayton's older sister Angela walked him into his classes. But he remained at the top of his class, spending hours studying, writing, and rewriting papers to make sure he earned perfect scores. By his 12th year in school, Clayton's obsessive need for perfection in all areas of his life was apparent. He would worry himself sick over every exam, and no amount of praise by his parents could assuage his anxiety. He finished at the top of his class, earning the award of Ducks, or the highest overall honor given for academic excellence. Still, Clayton was unhappy with his performance because he'd fallen short of an A-plus grade in one single subject. Weatherston stayed close to home, enrolling at Otago University in 1994 at the age of 18. Within two weeks, he left, overwhelmed by the change and overthinking every assignment, the result of his need to earn perfect scores in everything. He took an entry-level job in an accounting firm instead. But he returned in the middle of the year to give college another shot. He was able to achieve perfect scores in his classwork, but when it came time for the final exams, he became so anxious he made himself sick, vomiting repeatedly. He bowed out of taking the test and was able to get a medical certificate to sit a special exam the following year. This became a pattern in Weatherston's academic career, giving up on any assignment or exam he feared he wouldn't ace. He'd either walk out of the class or claim illness and try again later. Sometimes it took two or three tries before he'd actually complete a paper or exam and earn a grade. And Weatherston's grade always had to be not just an A, but an A+. In this way, he moved with a snail's pace through the program, finally earning a Bachelor of Commerce degree in 2000, 16 years after first entering the university. In 1998, Weatherston saw a doctor at the university health clinic and was prescribed Prozac. Prozac, the brand name for the drug fluoxetine, is an SSRI, or Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. SSRIs work by increasing the amount of serotonin in the brain, helping to maintain mental balance. It's most often used to treat depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and panic attacks. Although Weatherston had a long history of obsessive behavior and debilitating anxiety, it appears that he didn't see a doctor about medication until he was faced with a breakup. His girlfriend of four years was moving 1,400 kilometers away to Auckland, and the 22-year-old man was falling apart over the relationship ending. He continued to take Prozac for the duration of his academic career, and it appeared to stabilize him enough to complete his degree. As he moved into the PhD program after graduation, however, his anxiety increased. Still expecting nothing less than top scores, Weatherston twisted himself in knots over every paper. In 2002, upon receiving an A and not an a on a paper, he burst into tears in front of the department secretary. In 2003, at the age of 27, Weatherston took a job working for the Treasury in Wellington, located almost 800 kilometers to the north. It was the furthest he'd ever been away from home or his parents. He stayed in this position for nine months, but became homesick and ill, and he quit to return to Dunedin. He also complained about not being taken seriously by his colleagues and superiors. 
This type of complaint was typical of Weatherston, even while he was still in grade school. When he felt he wasn't receiving proper respect from others, he became frustrated and angry and lashed out. According to his parents, he returned home from Dunedin to recover from a glandular fever. His mother, Eulene, would say she believed his later troubles were as a result of never fully recovering from his illness. Now graduated with a degree in commerce and working towards a PhD at Otago University, Clayton Weatherston began seeing a psychotherapist for what his mother called fluctuating energy and mood. He was still prescribed Prozac as well. Not long after returning home, he began a relationship with a 28-year-old woman. By 2006, they were living together. Her identity has been kept private, but she would later report witnessing two sides to Weatherston. Quote, he had a loving, generous side and a nasty and mean demeanor on the other, she said. The private side was a fairly insecure person and someone who could be very mean, someone that got very worked up easily and wouldn't be able to get over those things, end quote. In 2006, Weatherston got worked up and attacked his girlfriend, kicking her and jumping on her. She was left injured and bleeding, and while the relationship ended, they remained friends. Later, she accidentally sent a romantic text to Clayton that was meant for another man. When he received it, he grew enraged. He called his ex and went on a profanity-laced tirade, calling her nasty names, saying she was disgusting and that he no longer wanted anything to do with her. But shortly afterward, he asked her to meet him at his office. She agreed, and when she arrived, he was sobbing and very upset. You know I love you and I've made such a mess of things, he cried. He admitted that he'd messed up, and she forgave him, but said the relationship was over. In the summer of the following year, he met Sophie Elliott, and within eight months, Clayton Weatherston's need for control within a relationship took a deadly turn. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Sophie Elliott completed an honors degree in economics at Otago University and had already secured a job with a promising future in the treasury. She was described as brilliant, spirited, and ambitious, and everyone who knew Sophie predicted great things for her future. Her less-than-six-month relationship with her former economics tutor, Clayton Weatherston, had been turbulent. By this time, Weatherston considered himself kind of a big shot in the economics department. He was regarded as brilliant by his colleagues and professors, but they also said he was arrogant and acted as if he were king, now that he held court over his undergraduate students. And to be fair, he was a popular lecturer and tutor with his students. He gave generously of his time and enjoyed mentoring his young students, many of whom were from other parts of the world. Having lived in Dunedin all his life, he liked to show off his knowledge of the area and how to best navigate the university system and the program. But if the Otago University campus was his kingdom, it was a small one. Weatherston would later comment that as the top student in his high school, he was, quote, a big fish in a small pond. Now he was a big fish in a slightly larger pond. But by this time, he understood he was unlikely to succeed at anything outside of the only setting he felt comfortable navigating, his hometown of Dunedin and the campus where he'd spent over a dozen years earning a degree. 
So imagine how this 32-year-old man with an underdeveloped ego, masked by an air of entitlement and arrogance, would have felt about his 22-year-old girlfriend already conquering goals he himself had failed. In short order, she'd completed the degree it took him six years to obtain and had already been hired at the Treasury. And Weatherston was most likely aware that, unlike him, Sophie would succeed at her job and go on to a bright future. He'd also been cautioned by a professor in the department that his problem with Sophie, a former student, might sink his chances at being hired to teach. Weatherston was worried about this and placed the blame on Sophie for this as well. We know that when challenged, Weatherston either threw in the towel or lashed out in anger. With Sophie, his strategy was even more cruel. He did his best to tear her down and destroy her self-esteem. He criticized her looks and her intellect to her face. Behind her back, he painted a picture to others that Sophie was, quote, insecure, obsessed with him, aggressive and violent, and even claimed she was of loose moral character. The relationship was in tatters by early January 2007. Sophie was just days away from leaving Dunedin for Wellington, and Clayton was dating another woman. The last time he saw Sophie was on January 7th, when she'd stopped by his flat to give him a check for a broken window that had occurred during an argument. He would later say she became physically aggressive after accusing him of pinning her down in his flat on December 27th. She'd struck him in retaliation, according to Weatherston. January 9th, 2009 was Weatherston's 32nd birthday, and the night before, he'd attended a barbecue at a friend's house, bringing along a date. Those in attendance said they didn't note anything off about his behavior that day, but by that evening, his mother said he appeared to be in a low mood. On the morning of his birthday, he met a friend for coffee. She would later testify that they'd talked about his birthday plans and his family. That evening, some friends of his were going to meet for drinks and karaoke. She brought up Sophie, asking him if he'd seen her. The friend recalled that he'd quickly said no and changed the subject. But we know that by 11.30 that morning, Weatherston had logged into Facebook and looked at Sophie's page, spending several minutes looking at new photos she'd shared. Two hours later, he showed up at her mother's door where Sophie was inside packing her things. Her move to Wellington was scheduled for the next day. Leslie Elliott answered the door. She saw Clayton standing there with his laptop bag slung over his shoulder. He asked if Sophie was in and that he had come to say goodbye and drop something off for her. Hearing someone at the door, Sophie stood at the top of the stairs and mouthed, Who is it? Leslie told her it was Clayton. Sophie rolled her eyes at the interruption and came downstairs to the door. She told him that she had a lot to do, and if he wanted to talk, it would have to be upstairs in her room so she could continue packing. He followed her up and observed the open suitcase that she was placing her clothes into. Leslie was listening intently to what was going on upstairs. Sophie's room was located directly above the kitchen where she was standing. She was nervous, remembering what her daughter had told her about Clayton attacking her in his flat. She'd even turned off the radio to listen, but heard nothing. About five minutes later, Sophie walked downstairs to the kitchen and said, I don't know what he wants. He's just sitting there, not saying a word. Leslie told her daughter to tell him they were running late and to get rid of him. Sophie had plans to have pizza with her friends later that day, one last time together before she left for Wellington. Leslie urged her daughter to show Clayton the door. They both speculated that he might have come by to smooth things over with Sophie, perhaps afraid she might report the incident between them to the police. Sophie said she would go back up and ask him to leave. She then returned upstairs. This next part of the story comes with the trigger warning, something I rarely do, but this account is somewhat graphic and certainly difficult to hear. The next thing Leslie heard was a door slamming shut 
and her daughter screaming, Don't, Clayton! Don't, Clayton! As Leslie rushed upstairs, her daughter was letting out repeated blood-curdling screams. She reached Sophie's bedroom door and turned the knob, but it was locked. Leslie started beating on the door in desperation to get inside and help her daughter. She ran back downstairs to the kitchen to retrieve something to pick the lock with. She also grabbed her cell phone. Sophie's screams continued along with the rhythmic thumping noise. Leslie heard the sound go on and on as she tried to steady her hands to pick the lock open. Her only thought was that the thumping must be the headboard of the bed and Weatherston was raping her daughter. The screaming continued until Leslie heard two gasping noises and then silence from Sophie. However, the thumping continued. All the while, Leslie continued to try and jimmy the door open while screaming into the phone with 111 to get police dispatched. She finally got the lock to turn and she burst through the door. Weatherston's back was to her and Sophie was lying on the floor. Her eyes were wide open, but the light in them had gone out. Her mother knew instantly that Sophie was dead. Weatherston was kneeling over her lifeless body, straddling her. He continued to stab her over and over with one hand while he attempted to hold the door closed with the other to keep Leslie out. He never said a word or looked at Sophie's mother. There was so much blood that Leslie said the room seemed to be tinted red. And still, Weatherston continued slashing Sophie's body. Leslie was recorded screaming into the phone, He's killed her! Clayton then succeeded at slamming the door on her. The 111 operator instructed her to get out of the house and said police and emergency services were on their way. But Leslie knew it was too late to help her daughter. So she ran toward the home of a neighbor who was a police officer. But before she could reach the sidewalk, her legs gave out and she fell into a heap on the lawn sobbing and crying for help. Only one officer had been dispatched to the Elliott home, and Leslie yelled at him for coming alone. She was barely coherent. He raced upstairs and found the door locked again. The officer identified himself to Weatherston and told him to open the door or he would kick it in. The officer heard the lock being turned, so he opened the door and stepped inside. I saw in front of me a young Caucasian female covered in blood around her neck and upper torso, he later testified. I then saw a male standing at the end of the bed next to the body. I said, what have you done? To which he replied, I killed her, in a calm voice. The vicious attack on Sophie Elliott by her ex-boyfriend, Clayton Weatherston, was even more shocking than first reported. In total, 216 injuries had been inflicted on her, mostly stab wounds from a knife and some of the wounds made with scissors. Weatherston had brought the knife with him concealed in his laptop bag. The scissors, it was determined, had been in Sophie's room. Weatherston would later claim that she had attacked him first, coming at him brandishing the scissors. The autopsy concluded that her heart and one lung had been pierced, and she'd also been stabbed in the neck and several arteries. A fatal wound to her throat had hit a major artery, from which she would have bled out quickly. The cause of death was massive blood loss. In addition, she had seven blunt force injuries to her body and defensive wounds on her hands and arms. After she was dead, Weatherston continued to stab her lifeless body with a knife as witnessed by her mother. Once he'd locked Leslie Elliott out of the room again, he continued his assault on Sophie. He'd picked up the scissors and used them to cut her nose, ears, and breasts. This cruel attack would have taken several minutes and was described by a forensic pathologist as a persistent, determined, and focused attack on the victim. 
which could only have resulted from, quote, purposeful activity for some considerable time, end quote. The pathologist also determined that several of the wounds inflicted on Sophie Elliott were directed at disfiguring her. Weatherston was charged with the murder, but pleaded not guilty, with his defense attorney arguing for manslaughter. The five-week trial began in 2009 in the Christchurch High Court. Weatherston's lawyer, Judith Ablett Kerr, claimed that her client was mentally ill and was, quote, provoked by the emotional pain of a tumultuous six-month relationship. The jury was warned that the evidence to be presented in the trial was, quote, unavoidably graphic. Sophie's parents, Gil and Leslie Elliott, and her two older brothers, Chris and Nick, forced themselves to sit through the retelling of Sophie's brutal murder in order to see justice done. But the hardest part of the trial for the Elliots was having to listen to their daughter's murderer describe how he had slaughtered her in graphic detail. From the moment he was arrested, Clayton Weatherston showed no remorse for his vicious crime. The first officer on the scene described Weatherston as calm and reserved, even as he was handcuffed and led away from the crime scene, covered in the young woman's blood. The officer had asked him, why did you kill her? To which he'd answered, the emotional pain she has caused me over the past year. Asked about the weapon, he'd calmly answered that he had used a knife that he always carried for protection in his laptop bag. The officer asked him where the knife was, and he answered, probably under her. Scissors were found lying near Sophie's legs, and the officer asked if they were also used in the assault. I used them at the end, Weatherston had replied. Weatherston took the stand in his own defense, admitting to manslaughter, but claiming that Sophie had insulted his mother and struck him first, knocking off his glasses. He claimed to remember nothing of the attack at first, but said he must have grabbed the knife that he carried in his backpack to defend himself. Clayton's demeanor during the five days he was on the stand did him no favors with the jury. He characterized Sophie as promiscuous, aggressive, and never once showed remorse. He spent a great deal of time detailing his own academic accomplishments for the jury and bragging about himself. All the while, he demeaned and maligned the woman he'd murdered and tried to portray himself as the victim. Clearly, I'm not Sophie's biggest fan because of the relationship, he said on the stand. And in my view, she's an attempted murderer or had committed an attempted assault. His attorney successfully argued that the 111 call evidence should not be heard by the jury, not because the graphic nature of the call would be upsetting to hear, but because it would be overly prejudicial to her client. The defense also put two psychiatrists on the stand who stated Weatherston was mentally ill and diagnosed him with narcissistic personality disorder. Weatherston claimed to have upped his dose of Prozac from one pill to three per day and had just taken this dose on the morning of the attack. Sophie's family and friends were outraged at the claim that Sophie had provoked Weatherston to murder her because of her, quote, aggressive and abusive behavior towards him and the volatile relationship, quote, he'd endured for six months. The defense also presented Sophie's private diaries as evidence and detailed her sexual history in court. The Crown countered by putting ex-girlfriends of Weatherston's on the stand to show that he had a pattern of abusive behavior in relationships, especially when the relationship was ending. Dr. David Chaplo, the Health Ministry's National Director of Mental Health, stated that Weatherston exhibited a history of grossly narcissistic behavior, which manifested itself when Weatherston was frustrated, spurned, or threatened. In Dr. Chaplow's opinion, the defendant had features of anxiety and personality disorder with features of narcissism and obsessionality, but had, quote, suffered no disease of the mind at the time of the murder. But the most powerful testimony came from Sophie's mother, who witnessed the horrific attack and murder of her only daughter. Leslie Elliott told the jury when she entered the bedroom, quote, the whole room seemed to be red. 
When asked to recall how Weatherston was positioned over Sophie's body during the attack, she said, I know that he was kneeling because he was stabbing her up and down and his body wasn't moving. He was kneeling over her legs. She described seeing her daughter's lifeless body lying in a corner of her bedroom. She was dead white and her eyes were staring, she said. Sophie was dead. Clayton was still stabbing her. I thought he was going right through her and that's what the rhythmic noise was, she concluded. The court had to take a recess after her testimony concluded as several courtroom spectators and jury members were sobbing. The defense tried to suggest that Mrs. Elliott was an unreliable witness because of the trauma she'd experienced in witnessing the attack, but her testimony was allowed into the record. Gil Elliott, Sophie's father, walked out of the court in disgust upon hearing Weatherston's attorney make this argument. Later asked by the press what he was thinking, Mr. Elliott said, I thought, bugger this. It was so insulting. Leslie was the most reliable witness. There were only three people there that day. After a five-week trial, Clayton Weatherston was found guilty of premeditated murder on July 22, 2009. At his sentencing on September 19th, Justice Judith Potter sentenced him to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 18 years. In making her decision, the judge said she took into account the continued attack and mutilation of Sophie Elliott's body after her death. I am in no doubt this murder was committed with a high level of brutality and callousness, Justice Potter told the court. She rejected the evidence that Weatherston routinely carried the knife for protection. She said she believed the killing was done in a deliberate and controlled manner and rejected the defense's claim that Weatherston was provoked. Weatherston displayed no emotion as the sentence was announced, just as he'd never displayed any remorse for his crime. The only time he showed any emotion at all was when his own father made a statement at the sentencing hearing, pleading with his son to admit what he'd done and offer an apology. In the end, Weatherston declined to voice an apology, instead asking his attorney to do so on his behalf. It was now the Elliot's turn to offer no response to this half-hearted statement. He was remanded to Christchurch Prison to serve his sentence. An appeal was filed by his attorneys in October of 2009, claiming that Weatherston had not received a fair trial due to the media frenzy surrounding his case. It was rejected by the appeals court. In 2011, his 2009 decision was appealed on several grounds, but this was also denied. It is unlikely that Clayton Weatherston will ever be considered for parole even after serving his 18-year minimum sentence, as he still has not expressed remorse for the murder. In 2010, the Elliots founded the Sophie Elliott Foundation, a program to educate young women on the signs of an abusive relationship. In 2013, the foundation created a one-day workshop titled Loves Me Not, aimed at grade 12 students. The workshop teaches attendees the aspects of healthy relationships and lists the red flags that signal abusive relationships. The Loves Me Not workshops are still run in New Zealand high schools, but are now funded by New Zealand police. Leslie Elliott left the foundation after being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2019. A book titled Sophie Elliott, A Mother's Story of Her Family's Loss and Their Quest for Change, written by the Elliott family, was published in 2011. The extensive media coverage of Sophie Elliott's murder led to a public outcry in New Zealand about the use of the provocation defense. When implemented successfully in court, the provocation defense has been used to reduce murder charges down to manslaughter. A provocation repeal amendment bill was introduced in 2009 by Justice Minister Simon Powell as a response to what he argued was a flawed law. It effectively provides a defense for lashing out in anger, not just any anger, but violent homicidal rage, Justice Powell said. 
It rewards lack of self-control by enabling an intentional killing to be categorized as something other than murder. In November 2009, the defense of provocation was abolished in New Zealand, thanks in large part to Clayton Weatherston's use of this defense as an excuse for his vicious and unprovoked attack on Sophie Elliott and her parents' fight to have the law repealed. By 2018, a decade had passed since Sophie was taken so brutally away from her family. Gill and Leslie Elliott had separated, but remained friends, and both still spend their time advocating for victims' rights and working to educate young people regarding intimate partner violence. On the 10-year anniversary of her daughter's death, Leslie Elliott reflected on the fact that Sophie would have celebrated her 33rd birthday that year. She could have been married with a family by now, who knows, she said. We've been denied that. I could be angry about that, but I don't feel angry. I feel incredible sadness. My anger might come out really clearly when he gets out, if he ever does, she said, referring to Weatherson's chance at parole. That's when I'll be angry, because I don't want him to get out, ever. Weatherston will be eligible for parole on January 9, 2026. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'll be back next week with another episode in the series, Revenge Attacks. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps others find the show. And please hit the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Thanks so much. I'll be in London on June 11th and 12th at CrimeCon UK. CrimeCon is the most anticipated true crime event every year. And if you're a fan of true crime, you won't want to miss it. Grab your favorite partner in crime and come out to learn from and rub shoulders with documentary filmmakers, investigators, and experts who are front and center to some of the most fascinating cases in the news. And of course, you won't want to miss Podcast Row. Come and hang out with me and all your favorite true crime podcasters from around the world. Tickets are available now and are anticipated to sell out, so don't wait to purchase yours. And if you use my discount code, onceupon 22 you'll get 10% off your registration. Go to crimecon.co.uk to find out more and register today. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia, and copy editing was done by Crystal Dernan. Until next time, be good to one another.